Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men pursuing faith, character, personal growth, and meaningful friendships. If you'd like to learn more about us and our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. We hope you enjoy this lesson from our series called Genesis, Why Is It This Way? Tonight I'm going to talk about the impact of being in the wrong place. You know, and as a Christian, being in the wrong place, it's very simple to define. It's when you're living away from God. So I'm going to start with a very brief story about a person that was in the wrong place. Just over 32 years ago, on December 16th at 11 p.m., I received a call from the Hammond, Indiana Fire Department. Our 275,000 square foot manufacturing plant had a very small fire inside. The fire department said, it'll be out soon, don't worry, you don't even need to come. I chose to do otherwise. Within the hour it took me to get there, the plant was overtaken and engulfed by massive flames. And at 1 a.m., the fire chief told me that they had lost one of their firefighters. Later that day, I was able to talk to the firefighters to ask them how the fire had spread and how the firemen had died. And they said, Fred Bidron, the fireman who died, had decided to go back into the building by himself. And they looked at me and said, Bill, Fred was a bit of a cowboy. He wanted to put out what was a small fire before it spread. But in the process of doing that, he opened one of the large overhead doors in the back of the plant, which created a wind tunnel and fed that small fire and turned it into an inferno. It became engulfed inside with smoke. And because Fred had no idea where he was in that plant, he quickly became disoriented. He ran out of oxygen and eventually died in the corner of the building where they found him nowhere near a door. Fred Bidron was away from his squadron, acting on his own. He broke all the rules of his engagement team. He did what he wasn't supposed to do. He put himself in the wrong place. That was a hard day for me. So many people were hurt, including himself, his family, our employees, me personally, and my family. Deeply hurt. So tonight we see the tragic pain of Jacob being in the wrong place. God had directed him to go to Bethel, but instead he chose to live in Shechem. And that decision separated Jacob and his family from God. Being away from God, they experienced the dark evilness And the evil invaded his son's hearts, and they became just as evil and destructive as their godless neighbors. So tonight, you guys, we can see clearly that living away from God will, in fact, lead to destructive behavior. And so my aim is that you will recognize when you're away from God, and you'll seek his help to find find your way back to him. So let's open with prayer, and let's dig into this text. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you. Lord, these stories are hard to read. I I really struggled with the story. I struggled with some of the thoughts of my past and who I have been and how destructive I've been. This was not an easy lesson, Lord. Lord, I pray right now that these dear brothers will hear you speak to their hearts and they will let themselves look at the destructiveness of their own hearts and lives and seek to come back to you and get a real clear picture of what it's like to be away and to get back to you, Lord. Father, pray that your Holy Spirit will rest upon us now, that we will not be distracted in any way. Lord, help my way of delivering your thoughts not mess things up. 
and help their phones be silent. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, guys, let's look at the artifacts of chapter 34 that piece together a story of men who are behaving without the influence of God. Looking back, last week we saw that Jacob experience the weight of 20 years of guilt lifted when he had this amazing happy reunion with his brother Esau. My contention is that that likely made him overconfident. So as he approached Shechem and Bethel, he felt pretty confident about his own decision to stay in Shechem. Jacob passed through Shechem on his way to Bethel. He could have kept going, but he stopped. Why would he have stopped? Shechem was a global trade center. It was a crossroad of all these different roads where lots of people came to trade and to do business. And Jacob had a lot of stuff to trade. He had a lot of animals. It was a place where he was potentially going to be wealthy. And that allure of economic benefit probably justified in his own mind a reason for him to put his family in harm's way. Jacob's sons used deception when they got to a point where they were, where they were murdering, thieving, enslaving, and seeking revenge. And when you looked at his sons, you saw the behavior of boys and men that were in a godless culture. And that culture was known for rape of foreign women. It was known for prostitution. It was known for temple concubines. Jacob's daughter was in danger. They should have known that. Jacob should have known that. And when that all happened with his sons, Jacob, instead of pointing them back to God, what did he do? He didn't talk about the morality of their behavior. He simply drug his feet, and he was only concerned about his personal safety. Again, this is not the behavior of a man that is close to God. It looks like a man who's distant from God. And if you read chapter 34, you will not see God's name mentioned anywhere in this chapter. And there's a reason for that. God's not a part of these people's lives at this point. It's not until the beginning of chapter 35 where we see God surface. And how does he surface? He challenges Jacob and says, you're in the wrong place. You need to go where I told you to go the first time. That's when we first see God show up. This proved God's disdain for Jacob's choice on where to live. My key takeaway from this chapter is that men can easily become distant from God. And when we do, we become progressively destructive to ourselves and the people around us. The Apostle Paul helps us see the extent to which our denial of God takes us. Just look at the extreme of this text. This is how far we can go as we move further away from God. Romans 1, 28 through 31. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they may do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. Doesn't this sound like Jacob's sons? This list describes the destructive behavior of men when we have fully moved away from God. This should scare you guys. This should scare you. So if moving away from God makes us destructive, then what causes us to move away from God? As I thought about my own life, mm, this is where it got hard. I remembered the first time when I was aware of evil in my heart. 
I was in fifth grade. I was leaving a county fair. <laughs> we just moved to this space, this place as a family. I grew up in Texas. We just moved to Chicago. We're leaving this county fair. I got all these new friends I want to impress. I want them to think I'm good at basketball. I've got a big ice cream cone. We're walking out of the county fair. We're all talking. We walk by these policemen. I take about 10 steps, hook shot, ice cream cone, cop, badge, nailed him. It was an excellent shot. <laughs> it didn't go well. But you know what I don't remember about that is how the cop and everything and my mom and just all of that trouble I got. I don't remember any of that. What I remember about it was feeling evil. It was the first time I'd ever felt bad. As I got older and learned to drive, me and my friends did donuts in people's yards, tore up people's yards. We thought it was so funny. And then we would drive by their mailboxes and someone would lean out the side window and we'd smash mailboxes. Did that all over the city I grew up in. When I got to my teens and early 20s, that wasn't good enough. We started drinking and doing drugs. And then I started chasing girls and it became a very sexual lifestyle. That time of my life, God was nowhere near me, not anywhere near me. I had nothing that would bridle me, nothing that would control what I felt was very instinctive, natural behavior. And everybody around me supported that type of behavior. I never went to church. I didn't pray. I didn't listen to anything or anyone that was Christian. I was completely separated from God. And when I look back, my behavior makes it really obvious. Now, you would think where I am today in my life that that destructive voice is completely gone. You would, wouldn't you? And at one level, that is very true. Jesus radically transformed me, and I'm telling you, it was radical. I hate all those behaviors, and I have no desire to pursue them in any way. In fact, it's pretty humiliating describing that part of who I am. But at another level, it would be a lie if I said I never have destructive thoughts. In fact, this is the heart of what I hope you'll remember tonight, that as a Christian, I still find myself capable of slipping away from God into that strange, destructive mindset. I love what the hymn writer said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. God, I, guys, I am prone to wander when I'm not reading the Bible and I don't pray. When I'm walking away from church because I want to watch sports, when I'm obsessed with my golf game in the summer, when I'm on breaks from Heart of a Man and when I'm on vacation, I just sort of drift away. I'll tell you, one of the other times I'm really far from God is when I get into disagreements with my wife. I just seem to pull away from God at times. And I see it in myself. I get cynical. I get pessimistic, critical, sarcastic. My thinking just changes. It's the craziest thing. I don't want to wake up and read my Bible. I want to argue. I want to tell her her faults. I feel disconnected. I don't want to be around her. And then I start having thoughts lustful thoughts that last longer than they should. And then the craziest stuff starts to happen. I'll be driving down the road sometimes and thoughts will pop into my head of destructive behavior. Like I'll look at someone in front of me and think I'm going to ram that car if they don't get out of my way. In fact, I think I'm going to throw what's in my hand right through their windshield. And I'll just be sitting there and like, where did that thought come from? I don't act on this stuff, but honestly, it feels like the hand of God is what's holding me back, not me. It's a bit shocking after giving my life to Jesus 
the destructive, this destructive spiral can happen so quickly. It's simply by being away from God. What destructive patterns show up in you when you're just a few steps away from him? And the key point I hope you hear is that you cannot avoid this destructive behavior if you move away from God. You can't. The consequences of Adam's sin was that our nature changed. We are born sinful, evil at the core, and we will revert back to evil if we do not abide in Jesus Christ. We cannot on our own avoid this, no less than we can avoid gravity. Being away from God is a bad place that always leads to destructive behavior. The great news is you can move back to a place close to God. You can. Here are the artifacts of Genesis 35 that bring out this concept. God saw the mess Jacob allowed his family to experience and spoke to him directly to tell him to go back to Bethel. God went to him right where he was. Man, if you don't know the gospel, gentlemen, this is it. Jesus looked at us and said, you are a mess and you are going to die without me. And this is exactly what God's doing with Jacob. He's like, you are a mess, bro. You're a terrible father. You're not leading spiritually. Your kids are slaughtering people. And he met him there. He met him there. He went right to Jacob and he spoke to him. And Jacob was so moved that God came to him. Yet again, he had done this numerous times. And yet again, he's back. And he demanded that his entire household get rid of their foreign gods, purify themselves and change their clothes. He was responding to this gratitude he had for God. He knew he had been given a third, fourth, I don't know how many chances at this point. But for some reason, it stuck this time. And this gratitude was welling up in him. And you see Jacob telling him, we're going to bury those foreign gods and your dirty possessions. And where? We're going to leave them right here in this filthy place of Shechem where they came from. Jacob was obedient to God. He moved his family to Bethel and he built an altar there. And then God came down and blessed him. And he said, you're the leader. This is your assignment. I've chosen you. You are the man. I've picked you. You will lead. You will be the spiritual leader. You will carry my covenant and your family will as well. I expect you to step up. You have failed, but you will not quit. Now is your time. Stand up. Get up and keep moving. Don't you dare step back now. I don't know about you, but when I fail spiritually, the last thing I want to do is stand up and keep leading. I want to hide. And God's saying, no, no, Jacob, you get up and do the right thing. The key principle I connected with in this section was this. God chose us and he always helps find our way, helps us find our way back to him. He always does. He chose us and he says, I'm going to help you. You're going to find your way back to me no matter how bad you failed or how far you went away. Listen to Psalm 139. It's so pretty. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. 
If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And that's what he's saying to Jacob. Guys, there's four ways we see God draw us back to him that are written in Genesis 35, and here they are. God says, move to a place that puts you close to God. Identify what you depend on that's not me. Bury your foreign gods where they're born and build altars to remember the one true God. Let's walk through these four. This is worth our time. First, you must move to a place where you're close to God. When Susie and I first got married, we were married in Cincinnati, Ohio. And right after we were married, my stepfather died, like literally three months later. That was hard. My stepfather was actually the best man of my wedding. That was hard. My mom needed help, so we moved back to Chicago. And when Susie and I got there, we were a newly married couple. So as you can imagine, we were having money problems. So we went to a financial planning seminar. Scotty, I know you'd be proud of me. Um, we did. And guess who we met there? A young Dutch couple that told us about their church. We went to visit their church, and we got to know them, Kurt and Bev. And they became very good friends of ours. And we joined that church, and we remained members there for 25 years. It's so cool to me when I look back at that and see how God used the death of my stepfather and two committed followers to lead us back to his home. Just what he did for Jacob. He sent him to Bethel, which means house of God. Needless to say, I truly believe God wants every person to be part of a local church. In Acts 2, 46-47, we see the first Christians doing exactly that. Every day they cont continued to meet together in the temple. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily when they were being saved. Guys, when God leads you to a good church, go and join. And then when he leads you to a good church and you join, relocate your home close to church. When we moved from Chicago to Indianapolis 10 years ago, you know what we found first before we found a house? A church. I remember I was in Kenya and my wife called me and she came here and she said, you're never going to believe it. She's literally sitting in the service. I'm in Kenya. And she said, they're talking about doing all this stuff overseas in Kenya right now. And the church, our church is doing things there. And I said, what? And she's crying and I'm crying. I'm like, is that where we're supposed to be? And she said, yeah. <laughs> when we found our church, we then decided where our home would be, which would be near our church. I'm building another home right now. And you know where it is? Closer to my church. Living near the house of God keeps you close to God. If the drive's too far, you're a lot less likely to regularly attend, and you're highly unlikely to serve in the church. When you serve the people in your church is when you feel connected. Heart of a Man has helped us get connected to all of you and your wives and men and women in the church we never would have met had we not served. Serving helps us, me and my wife, feel close to so many people, which helps me personally feel close to God. And when I feel close to God, you know what I don't want to do? I don't want to move away from him. 
because I know what it looks like when I do. So what is keeping you from joining and serving in a local church? Another way to draw close to God is to identify what you depend on that is not God. Jacob told his family to get rid of their foreign gods. And this gets hard because you don't really understand what a foreign God is, and it's hard to apply, but I think I can land this if you stick with me. The people at that time lived in deep fear of the natural world, and so they created gods that they thought would control every aspect of what was going on in nature. So worshiping a God that controls what you fear makes you feel in control of that fear. And this is what you saw all over, polytheism, pagans, they all worshiped the gods of nature because that made them feel in control of nature. So what is a foreign God? A foreign God is something other than God, the one true God, that you deeply depend upon to manage your fears. Why would God want them to get rid of their foreign gods? Because if their gods are not real, they can't possibly take care of your fear. And a man whose fear is not under control will become destructive. The Bible says God is love, and that love is the only power that can control fear, which controls the destructive nature of a man. 1 John 1 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Genesis 35 helps us see this. Dependence on anything other than God to manage your fears will lead you away from God. So what do you depend on to manage your fear? Is it control of your children or your spouse? Is it your career and the positions you hold? Is it what makes you look good? I think this one's big and I think it's highly overlooked. Is sex what helps you control your fear? I think this is a big one for most men. Or is it your hobbies and playing sports? What helps you manage and control your fear? The way to know your foreign gods is to remove them from your life and see what happens to your fears. To stay close to God, you must identify the foreign gods that you use to manage your fears. And once you've identified your foreign gods, we see what Jacob did. You have to bury them in the land where they were conceived. We've discovered this, guys. I think, stay with this thought. This is going to be hard, but stay with it. We've discovered through many hours of helping men that most of what we use to control our fears was formulated in our past. When we experienced a deep pain, we wrote beliefs about ourselves and about God into our hearts and our minds. Just think of the story of the woman at the well. Jesus helped her by asking about her past. Her belief about herself and about God was formulated from what? From all her five failed marriages. And once Jesus helped her see how her beliefs about herself and God were formed, he was able to help her understand why she needed a new identity. Until you get to the root cause of your fears, you will struggle to understand the false beliefs that you have adopted to protect yourself. Those false beliefs are the source of your foreign gods. When you draw close to God, he will send other men and the Holy Spirit to help you discover the causes of those fears and replace them with his promises. 
That is part of what we're trying to do in this class, you guys. And it's part of what we do in our heart groups. Help men discover the true beliefs that they've developed that center around their fears. And when you find those and you discover them and you replace them with what God's promises are, that's the burial of your foreign gods. And this is what Jacob was doing. He's telling them to bury your false fears and the things that helped you manage your fear. They will not work and they do not work. Bury them here. The only thing that's going to help my kids not murder more men is to get control of their fears and turn them over to God and let him identify them as his. When I was two years old, my father left my mother with four children. I was raised for about six years by my grandma. And in that time frame, I came to believe I was the only person I could trust. Accomplishments got me the attention of people and made me feel worthy, and it took away my fear, so I thought. So you can imagine, results and accomplishments were and have been my foreign gods. The fear of being alone and unseen is what brought them to life. Results and accomplishments, my gods, what animates them is my fear of being alone and unseen. This is what he's talking about when he's talking about these foreign gods. I came to Jesus at age 29, but at age 50 is when I started to get help with emotional issues that were ironically impacting my ability to achieve success and results. God's got a sense of humor. I discovered my false beliefs in the way I was managing them. That's when I started to realize what I just described to you. I was 50. That's a long time to live with false gods. And I was still a Christian at then, so I was trying to have them both. Jesus and my false gods, living with both. It doesn't work, you guys. What I found is on days when I bury those false beliefs, when I literally say no, you are not defined by your accomplishment. Your results do not define who you are. Who defines you is God. God defines you. You're his child and he loved you before you ever did anything right. When I say that, I feel close to God. When my day starts there, I'm in a good place. But the days I dig up those old gods, which I do, they're just buried around the tree. I struggle those days. When I want to achieve, that's when I'm worshiping my foreign God again. Guys, this is what Jesus meant when he said you had to die to yourself daily. This is what he meant. Every single day you have to get up and take off the foreign gods and you got to dig a hole next to the tree and you got to throw them in there. That's how your day starts. And you bear him and say, not today, not today. Today I will believe in the one true God, the God Almighty who saved who gave up his life for me, that's who I will believe in. We have to bury those old beliefs every day and rehearse the new beliefs if we're gonna bury our foreign gods. How will you start to identify the source of your false beliefs that you use to control your fears? The last way Jacob found, the last way Jacob found his way back to God was to build an altar. This seems a bit weird, but two things happen at an altar. Men give thanks to God and they make sacrifices to appease him. And at this stage in Jewish history, there's not been instructed. God has not told Jacob to make animal sacrifices to appease sin. So it's not what he's building the altars for. God wants Jacob to build altars whenever he went to a new place to give thanks to him. 
And by giving thanks, he could memorialize all God had done in his life. So during those memorial services, what do you think Jacob is telling his children? What do you think he's talking about? Let me tell you about your great-great-grandpa Noah. There was this boat. There was this flood. And he saved our, 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 our grandpa Noah. And then there was Abraham. And then there was Isaac, my dad. And my dad had a knife to his neck laying on an altar just like this one. And God saved him because there was a ram in the thicket. And he's telling his kids, and he's like, you, you think I'm not thankful for that? I'm thankful. And look what God did for me. He saved me from my brother Esau. He saved me from my cousin, uh, Uncle Laban. He saved me from all my stupidity. I'm thanking God. This altar is a memorial to my thanksgiving to God. That's why he had him build an altar. It was a visible sign for him to recall God's blessings. And every time his family passed by, they would look and go, that's where that happened. We too should find ways to memorialize the great things God has done in our life. And we need to leave markers behind everywhere we live. So when our family passes by those places and their grandkids and their grandkids are in the car, they can say that right there is where God did this in our family, where God did this. Not where we had a donut and a good time, but where God did this. Markers for your family for generations to see. One of the ways we do this in our family is by dedicating buildings when they are constructed. We host a prayer gathering when we start and when we finish. And at completion, we install a plaque with the date on it, with a Bible verse, and with words that dedicate the building to God. These structures that are around the country will forever be reminders to our family. When we go visit those buildings and we look at the plaques, we can go there today and we can look and say, oh, the memories of God here. And because at every one of those places, we rehearsed those. We praised God. We dedicated the building to him. And we talked about how he blessed us and how he did that. We do that with our homes as well. Those buildings are altars in our family that remind us of God's goodness to us. I found another way. And it's by serving people in our church. For example, we've been helping Ruth Ann get her home back in order. And one of the worst jobs that we had staring at us was cleaning out this house of hers. Three generations of people lived there. Two generations had died and left all their stuff. She's in a wheelchair. She's a dwarf. She can't clean out this house. It's mountains of garbage and dirt and waste. It's so overwhelming. And we're looking at that going, the next big step is we got to go in and clear all of that out of there. And how are we going to do that without her feeling attached to every single thing? It'll take weeks to get rid of it. She won't want to throw anything away. We were called by some ladies that are in a Bible study with her. And they said, Bill, we heard you're helping with this project. Could you have a dumpster delivered? Absolutely. So we had the dumpster delivered and we drove over there immediately. And Kyle and I and Jay, we all go in and these women are like locusts all over this place. <laughs> I'm telling you, like, dude, just cleaning this thing out. And, and, and in a way we can't do it, you guys. We would have been like, shut up. No, that goes in the trash. Stop crying. No. You haven't touched it in a year. No, no. Hey, get her out of here. You go get her a burger. Just shut her up and get this stuff in the garbage. These women were like, oh, look at the picture. And they'd cry with her and look at the picture. I'm like, this thing's... No, they got it done in like a week. They emptied this thing out. We were dreading this work, man. 
And when we saw that, I'm telling you guys, the gratitude that's poured over me, I, I, honestly, it was like, like God was pouring a glass of gratitude over me. I've never felt so grateful that I didn't have to do that. I honestly did. I just was dreading it. <laughs> In that moment, I truly did. I honestly did. I stood there with calm. I'm like, I feel so, I just feel so good. I feel God's love and his care for me. Guys, as we start to rebuild that house and we're going to ask your help to do it, that house already feels like an altar to me. It already feels like a place when I go by with my sons and their kids and their kids. We're going to say, let me tell you what God did there. We saw it firsthand. We watched. God was here. He moved in this house. We worshiped him here. We prayed here. This is an altar for our family. Her house is like an altar to me, you guys. I feel a deep gratitude toward God, and I remember what he did. Our family will share in it forever. What altars could you construct to give thanks to God and to remember him? What are the altars that you're building in your life so that your kids will know that? Well, let me close with this summary. Very simple. Even after you become a Christian, you will become progressively destructive when you move away from God. But as a follower of Jesus, God will always help you find your way back to him, no matter how far you've moved away. So, dear friends, where you are really matters to God. Shechem will pull you away from God, but Bethel is where he wants you to be. So where are you? In Shechem or in Bethel tonight? Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. And gosh darn we, oh man, we look at our life, Lord, and we see all the destructive things we've done as men. We have so much power, Lord, and it can be so destructive. And yet you've given us the ability to be so productive. So Father, please fill our spirits with a joy and a desire to be near you in Bethel, where the power that you give us will be productive and powerful and good and bring life to many. Help us move back towards you. And when we move away, when we get away from you, please don't let us get so destructive that we hurt people. Help us see it quickly and fall on our knees and beg for your help to get back home to you. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen.